All right, here's what we're doing. Last week, I just want to review for those of you who are catching up with us real quickly on where we've been. We spent some time talking about the reasons we're going to study spiritual warfare. Last week, we covered what I called rule number one, that there is an invisible world. We looked at scripture describing the invisible spiritual world. We looked at the second rule, which is that we are involved in that battle. Most Christians, or a lot of Christians, have the misconception that it's going on, they agree with it, but they're not really engaged in it, or that we're not supposed to be engaged in it. Really, that it's not our job, that angels and demons, they might theoretically be around us doing something, but we're not really to be involved. Last week, I started to set up the case that that's not true. First of all, we're involved because it affects us directly. The battle is over us. We're not battling for any other reason. And second, that there really are weapons at our disposal and that we're commanded by Paul to engage. We'll look at that in just a second. The fourth rule we talked about is that the battle is really taking place in our minds. And we'll look at more carefully tonight why it takes place in our minds. What's going on? Why is the battle, as I said last week, kind of taking place between our ears? Why is that the battlefront? We also spent some time last week, I want to say learning about, but it was more like debating about, the origin of Satan. Who is Satan? Where did he come from? What's his role? And we're going to spend a little bit more time talking about that tonight. We also looked at the role of angels. So that was kind of our kickoff introduction. And we got pretty deep into it. Let me go a step further with you tonight. Go to the next slide. This is our theme verse. It's Ephesians six ten through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians six ten through 12. Last week we analyzed this and broke it down and said this is a command that Paul was actually saying, you need to put on the full armor of God to protect yourself. We looked specifically at this next verse, go to the next slide, that really the commandment that we're going to use is that we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's why last week I said the battle takes place in our mind. While we make fun of the idea of having an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other really kind of toying with us or pulling us, Scripture actually kind of almost supports that notion. Not in the literal sense, not that there really literally is a devil or an angel there, but that the battle that's going on is to get a hold of our knowledge of Christ. You guys know that if we do not have knowledge of Christ, we're hopelessly lost. So the whole game, the whole battle, if you will, is over will we or will we not know Christ and know him correctly. Next slide. Just as a quick review on who the adversary is that we're dealing with, we went through each of these in detail last week, but I just want to throw it up there because we're going to be talking a little bit more about Satan tonight. So in fairness, let me just recap. Although let me say that our job here is not to glorify Satan. So when I say we're going to be talking about Satan tonight, it's more to understand and appreciate our adversary and not to fight against him. Okay. Who is the devil? He's a created being, an angel, actually first among the angels, created perfect in his original sense, having a heavenly estate, the guardian of God's glory, having more power than anyone in the universe except God, more beautiful than anything or anyone in the universe except God. And the citations are there for you if you want to look them up. That's what we went through last week. 
Okay. Next slide, we looked at one other thing, which was Satan's claim and the reasons he fell last week. And really it comes down to understanding that he was saying these words as recorded in Scripture. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And we talked about how each one of those was an attempt to equate himself or best God, the one who created him. That his sin was pride, and that's the reason he fell. So where we left off last week was we were starting to analyze the devil's strategy. What's he doing? What's the whole purpose? Why are we even studying the topic if not to understand his strategy? If you go to the next slide, we covered the first one last week, and I want to go into a little bit more detail into the second one. What is the devil's strategy? Clearly, it's to blind the people who don't know God from the truth. We believe as Christians that Jesus is the only way. The devil thinks, fine. If that's what the battle's about, my job is to take down as many as I can, and I'm going to try to prevent as many people as possible from knowing him. So those who do not know the truth, he wants to keep them from knowing the truth. We talked sometimes in a couple of weeks, we've kind of tossed around this topic. What are some of the ways that he does that? He distracts people. We're going to see in a few minutes some of the other ones. He tells people, chase money, chase this, chase anything, just don't worry about Jesus. Or he puts doubts in our minds, and that's enough. Jesus is hard enough to find in his lifetime that if you miss him, too late. That's his strategy. But what about Christians? What about us? Because some of the most troubling topics arise when you deal with Christians. How far can the devil go? What is the extent of his power? Is he allowed to do anything he wants? Can he take us down? Now, you know that my view is if you were the devil, you would probably want to take down as many people as possible. Not just non-Christians. In fact, if you wanted to take down more non-Christians, wouldn't it be a good idea to take down some notable Christians along with you? For example, if you see Christians and you're a non-Christian, you're thinking, I wonder if what they believe is true. Wouldn't it be fantastic for the devil or more efficient for him to take down a few key visible Christians and bring them down so that most non-Christians looking at them would just say, eh, I didn't think that was worth it anyways, and write the whole thing off. Here are some of the ways that that might happen. For us, how does he take us down? Well, for those of us who do know the truth, he's going to convince us that there is no battle. Most Christians, if you ask them today, if you ask them on a true or false exam, if you're giving them a test of Christianity, say, are there angels? They would say, true. You know, Are there demons? True. Do angels and demons often fight each other? They would say, true. Most people kind of cognitively know it, but they don't believe it to the point where they think, I should be living my life in a way that takes into account that I'm in the middle of a war. Yeah. Um, do you think that's different than our battle against our flesh? I think the devil uses our battle against the flesh as one of the ways to defeat us. Let me step back one big step. In the first week when we introduced this topic, I was talking about the, there's that continuum between people taking responsibility for what they do and not blaming everything on spiritual issues. And all the way over here, the continuum on the other side where everybody thinks everything is spiritual. We've got to be somewhere in the middle. Do I think that we would have struggle against the flesh if there was no devil? Yes. 
We're sinful people. Do I think the devil exacerbates our struggle with the flesh to distract us? Yes. So his job is just to fuel, fuel the flame? Yeah, if you're sitting in his battle camp, and we're going to talk in just a minute about how the victory has already been won, what else does he have to do but try to take down as many as he can? So how would you do that? I mean, one of the things that we almost are afraid to do, and I'm actually, I'll admit I'm afraid to do it, for a second, let's put off all the church notions of like, you know, how we're supposed to approach this topic. Put yourself in your enemy's shoes for a moment. If you want to really know your enemy and what he's doing, pretend you're him for a moment. Pretend that you've done this wicked thing of defying God and you know what your end is. But for some reason, which we're going to talk about tonight and wrestle with, God is allowing you time. And he hasn't brought the end and the judgment on you yet. You've got time. In fact, you've got a lot of time. You've got thousands of years. But you know that in the end, you're going to pay for it. What else would you do? And how would you do it? I think you would start, if I were him, I would think, let's get on the whiteboard and come up with all the ways we're going to screw up these people. I'm going to have some of them chase false notions in life. I'm going to have some of them start new religions that aren't true. I'm going to have some of them just not believe there is a religion. I'm going to, and you can go down the road. But then when it comes to Christians, I'm going to get them a little bit confused myself. And I'm going to cite scripture for that. I'm actually making that up. I'm going to confuse what they believe a little bit and kind of distract them a little bit. I'm going to distract them by making them feel that they're not part of the battle, that they can't do anything, that they're inadequate, that they're... You see what I'm saying? Like, so there's all sorts of things he does. I think he looks at every one of us and he goes, okay, for you it's going to be this, and for you it's going to be this. He comes up with his own strategy for each person. Why not? He's got all the time. Let me go through two more slides and then we'll come back to this debate because it's going to widen a lot tonight. I can tell we haven't even gotten to the to the debate stuff yet. All right. How does the devil implement a strategy against Christians, specifically? You know, I, I told you that he could do a lot of things to blind non-Christians, but I want to show you how he blinds Christians in particular, and some of these as well apply to non-Christians, but let's not be, let's not be naive. The Bible tells us that he, 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 he look, he, the Bible tells us that he roams around like a roaring lion looking to devour us. Us meaning the ones who believe. So this is not just a non-Christian issue. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that he's not seeking to destroy you. We'll talk about whether he can in a minute, but let's, let's not take away the fact that he's trying to anyway. Here's some things that he does to implement his strategy against us. First of all, Satan attacks the church directly. Satan, the Bible tells us, is behind false doctrines. He's behind unintentional theological errors that creep up in our congregations and cause divisions and strifes, and sometimes doesn't even cause division. Sometimes we just go merrily along our way, not even realizing that we've invented our own religion and we don't even know. That's kind of alluding to what Monique was talking about just a second ago. Satan is also behind many of the false religions of the world. By the way, just so that you know, I'm not just spewing language. Let me quote you some Bible verses that support some of these concepts. Satan is behind false doctrines, Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Okay? Satan is the prince of this world. This is what he tries to do, is have the world creep in to the church all the time and give us these... I can think of so many examples of in America how the American culture creeps into our churches and causes us to to sing a nationalistic religion rather than God's religion. Satan is behind false religions. 1 Corinthians 
This is Paul writing, Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifice of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be in participation with demons. Okay? He's telling us straight out, and I've always wondered this, and Scripture seems to support it. I'm not sold 100% yet, but I can at least say that Scripture hints that some of the places that you see false religions popping up all over the world, or well-meaning religions for that matter, Paul says that the sacrifice of pagans are offered to demons. The implication in the text is that they don't know, they think they're worshiping their gods and their idols, but who they're really worshiping are demons. That implies that demons are behind false religions and well-meaning religions and anything that isn't of God. Satan attacks unbelievers. We already know this, 2 Corinthians 4.4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So right there directly, we at least know that Scripture comes right out and says Satan is working to blind non-believers, but he's also working to start up all these other little religions and mistruths, okay? That's Satan attacks unbelievers. We just saw that on the screen. Yes, going back to attacking believers, here's some of the ways he does that. He persecutes believers. We know that's happening all over the world. He hinders, prevents our service to God. He alienates people. He causes division, plants doubts in our minds, shapes sects and cults. And I can provide you with scriptural references for each of those. Now, let me, let me be clear on this because this goes back to our tension on the continuum. I'm not saying, and neither are the researchers or the people that I'm researching, they're not saying that every time you see persecution, the devil is behind it. Okay, that goes back to that whole tension we're fighting. Like, people can persecute one another of their own free will. We do it on our own sometimes, all right? But Satan loves to take advantage of those situations and figure out ways to exacerbate what we already have a predisposition to do. Okay? We are sinful people. We have a predisposition to do it. But that's not to say that every ill in the world is the cause of our own sin. A lot of it is. But he's loving it. And he's not only loving it. You need to go with me a step further. He's fanning the flames. Most Christians sitting in the pews are very comfortable saying, he's probably loving it. It's hard for them to make the next step to actually join the battle and say, and he's actually fanning the flames. Because that requires a belief in an active Satan who's actually got a plan, who's actually doing something. It isn't just a guy who runs around in a red suit on Halloween. And that's where he neutralizes us when I say that he convinces us that there's not even a battle going on because we're like, yes, there's persecution of Christians around the world. It must be that there's just bad people persecuting Christians around the world. And that's true by itself. But it's also true that he's probably jumping in there himself and trying to see if he can fan that flame a little bit more. Okay. Next slide. Here's some more evidence of Satan's strategy at work that we see in the church. These are results. These are sins, by the way, that go on on their own. But these are more the ones that he likes to exacerbate. Anger, pride, worry, self-reliance. Isn't that a great one, by the way? Every time I see that one, I think self-reliance. In America, that's, like a, that's not a sin. That's a virtue flies right in the face of God. God wants us to rely wholly on him. And yet, we have this self-reliant culture. So if you want to look for a subtle way that Satan gets in, he's like, be self-reliant. Be your own person. 
Stand on your own two feet. You should be proud of yourself for the things that you're doing. Look at all the things you can accomplish on your own. And you're thinking, like, how could that be sinful? Because it's not God's plan. Discouragement, worldliness, lying, immorality, distorted doctrine. Here's another example. This is just an example. I'm not going to be careful. I'm not saying that this is the sum total of Satan's strategy. But one of the books that I'm reading is by Chip Ingram, and he has this kind of quote, this long, long quote, so I paraphrase it. I want you to hear this. Just this is one example of how Satan takes normal things that we don't really think of as sinful and distorts them to hurt Christians. Satan distorts our expectations of the Christian life. So the expectations we have, we have to be careful of. He has created a cult of happiness, and we have all joined it from within our churches. He has convinced us to make a deal with God that God never even agreed to. That if we read our Bibles, pray a lot, go to church faithfully, live reasonably moral life, and reasonably moral, you know, we're allowed some sinning on the side, and serve whenever we can, that we are guaranteed a happy life, and that God will respond with peace, prosperity, and freedom from the suffering of this life. Then, when we encounter the reality of life, the reality of the Christian life specifically, we are left disappointed and let down by God. We did all the right things. Why didn't it work out? This is the kind of subtle tactic that Satan sneaks into the Christian's life. Because we go to church, we sing our songs, we clap our hands, we talk about praise things, everything's going great, everybody at church is always doing great, smiling and shaking hands, loving one another, nobody is doing bad, right? And we buy into that, and Satan loves it. Because there's nothing that probably pleases him more than watching one who was in the club lamenting and crying out to God going, What's going on? Are you even there? Yeah. Offer happiness in his life, that you have Christ joy in you, but you will suffer, and you will suffer more if you are. That's truth, right? That's what the Bible says, right? Unfortunately, this may be news to you. There's so many Christians that go to our churches that don't know that and don't read their Bibles that intently. I mean, salvation sounds so good, and freedom from the guilt sounds so good. And all that stuff about miraculous prayer and all the things and living the Christian life, it almost, and it, look, some churches are more guilty of this than others, but some churches sell it like, you know, this is what you've been missing your whole life, and we package it almost the way that infomercials package, like, if you only had this one gadget, your whole life would be so much easier. So this is it. This is the secret of success, is to be a Christian. And while the truth of the underlying statement is true, that being a Christian is ultimately the only way to eternal happiness with God. You're absolutely right that God never promises happiness in this life. In fact, the scriptures are very stark. Look at the disciples. Their lives didn't end very happily. They didn't, they, you know, what they signed up for, you know, and what they did and what they saw. They, I mean, even people who live lives of healing others, doing crazy things, Peter walking on water, healing, all this stuff, it didn't end so good for any of them. You know, Paul writes all his nice stuff and then didn't end well for him. That's not the life that we were promised. But there are no statistics to back this up. Maybe 20% of Christians actually know that, have matured enough in their belief to get into it enough to know. You know, and if you hear most of the sermons you hear about Christian, I mean, very few of them are on such a note that to shake us to the core of our foundation understand that reality. So, yeah, I think Satan's kind of sitting there thinking, 
take out half of these people, you know, just by bringing that kind of discouragement into their life. Again, maybe I'm giving him too much credit, like he's individually got a battle plan for each person, but why underestimate your enemy in any war? Assume the worst, and if it's not that bad, good. But I mean, why, why give him less credit? Because isn't that exactly what the, this whole topic is about? Kind of shining the light in an area that none of us know anything about. We don't really deal with it, and we live in total ignorance of it. So yeah, maybe it seems like we're overemphasizing it for four or five weeks, which is just because we're bringing it up over and over. I always give the adversary or the opposing counsel or whatever you want to call it, you always have to assume that they will do everything right, they will not mess up, and that they have, you know, they're the best at what they do. If you ever underestimate your opponent in any situation, you will end up losing. And if they turn out not to be as good as you gave them credit for, good, that's to your benefit, but don't, don't give them the benefit of that. All right, let's talk about Satan's limitations. Maybe we're giving him too much credit. And some misconceptions that people have about his power. Last week, we really struggled a lot, man. We debated the idea of, does Satan have free will? Do angels have free will? And we finally at least agreed as a group that angels have enough free will at least to fall. We know that. Whether they can do anything else, they're like an on-off switch, right? Fall or not fall, right? We agree that they at least could fall, and I think that's probably right. I don't know that they're running around doing much else. But let's look at some other misconceptions, because one of them was that angels don't have free will. And obviously, they have enough to fall, Satan is not God's equal. A lot of people have the misconception that this is a battle, they say in one of the points, between good and evil, and that you need to have a battle between good and evil. And it needs to be of these like opposite forces, a yin and a yang, a good and a bad, in the universe going on, and that God needed Satan. Okay? These are all myths. Totally theologically off-base. They're popular in popular culture, but they're not true. Satan is not God's equal. He was created by God. And God could snuff him out right now. It's not a battle between good and evil in the sense that there has to be a good and there has to be an evil. And it's not a battle where the outcome is uncertain. The outcome's already been determined. Here's something else. God is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. Satan is not. God knows everything, is everywhere, and has all power. Satan doesn't have that ability. He's a created angel. In fact, if you look at the passage in Ezekiel that we looked at last week, there's even evidence that even though Satan was perfect, the most beautiful, that when he fell, he lost some of that. So he may no longer be as powerful or as beautiful as he was before, we don't know. But there's evidence that he's no longer as powerful as he was. James 4.7 gives us an assurance. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice that those are to be taken together. Some people are very good at praying about resisting the devil. But the first part is very important. Submit yourselves to God. If we're living a life where we're in full submission to God... If we live a life where we're not allowing sin to creep into our lives in places where the devil can take advantage of us, we should have power to resist him and he will flee. A lot of people have trouble with this resist him and he will flee because, again, we have extremes. Either some people believe, I have power over the devil, I can do whatever I want, he will have to listen to me. 
Or on the other extreme, they're like, but he's, been over, he's overcome me so many times, I don't believe I have any power over him. Read the verse. Submit yourselves to the Lord. The person who's overcome over and over, I'd say, are you really submitting to yourself to the Lord? Or are you just living whatever life you want to live and allowing Satan to take advantage of it? To the person on the other side who believes they have all power, it's not your power, it's God's power. Submit yourself to God. Stay out of the extremes. And we know that God has placed restrictions on the devil's domain. He can't do everything and he can't go everywhere. Here's some verses on the next slide. John 4.4 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I know that in specific instances, we know that he has to ask permission to do certain things, right? Like in the book of Job, he comes to God and says, may I tempt Job in the following ways? And God says, yes, you may. Like how it changes when he was talking that's another good example. I mean, when, when Jesus says to Peter, I have bad news for you, the, the devil has asked me permission to sift you like wheat. That's another example of the devil needing permission to do a certain thing. All right, John 5, 4 through 5. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. By the way, you keep seeing the word the world. Because the world is a synonym for the prince of the world, which is Satan. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So, let's not give him too much credit because he is limited in his power. We should not fear him, but we need to appreciate that he has power. Let's state it that way. Again, Christians operate in the extreme. Some of us are like, ah, I don't need to worry about him. Who cares? Jesus already won the victory. Why should I even bother with this thing? And then there's the other ones who are rebuking him left and right everywhere they go, walking down the sidewalk like, get away from me, Satan. Get away from me. Get away from me. You know. And he's happy having you operate in the extremes because it's just another misconception of who he really is. The last point on here is fairly important. I've made the point over and over that the victory's already been won. Everything we've talked about for two weeks now, I think we have a good understanding of who Satan is, what his limitations are, what his battle strategy is. All right, let's take the gloves off for a minute. Let's, let's really wrestle with this. If we know that the victory belongs to Jesus. Why is Satan still going on? And let's go even a step deeper. Why is God letting him do this? I mean, isn't at the very heart of our souls what Christians really want to know, if you're going to really get down to it, if I wasn't here tonight, or even if I was, and we said, you know what, tonight we're having God come in to talk about this topic, we can ask any question we want, and we go like, what's the purpose of him still getting to run around the world for all of these years, wouldn't it have just been easier just to squelch him immediately after he fell? What's the purpose? What he said, like, that just basically starts off what I'm going to say, and that is that because he's so prideful, he doesn't want to believe that he lost. On the one hand, you're saying his pride blinds him from, from giving up, that he doesn't want to believe that he's been defeated, but do you believe that he knows that he's defeated? He just, maybe he doesn't want to admit it, but he... I think he 
does, he just doesn't want to admit it to himself. And what would, going a step further, if you were in Satan's shoes, why would you do that? I can't say God anyone to you exactly, because I don't know if it's that clear, but I know that God will Angela, are you saying that God created Satan for a purpose to like do something for God? Well, yeah. Oh, wait, I just let Angela to sink for a while. Because I think what you just said, if I understand it right, is that he's doing a job for God. So that means that God knew that he would do the job, so that's why God created him in the first place. I'm actually going to introduce the opposite viewpoint to you so that you can read it and see if you like it. I found a great website that attacks Christianity. He's actually well-written. He's taken the time to write an entire book that rebuts Lee Strobel's case for Christ. So this guy's dedicated because he's written a whole book. Is he an atheist or is he like Church of Satan? No, 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 no. He just is a guy who doubts Christianity. Here is the viewpoint on Satan. I often hear Christians talk about Satan the great deceiver. When I tell them that I'm quite confident there is no such being, they ask me how I can be so sure. Therefore, I decided to write this article to let you know. So who is Satan? Satan is supposedly a powerful supernatural being created by God. God intended Satan to be good, yet Satan turned evil. How is it possible that God, from whom only good things come, created a supernatural being that turned evil? And by the way, as I'm reading this, I want you to really think, because this is what you, having walked through part of the series, should be able to respond to people. So this is kind of like the uh, midterm. See how you're doing on responding to some of these questions. Right off the proverbial bat, this seems to make the idea of Satan hard to believe. Note that Matthew 7.18 says, A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. How could the bad fruit of Satan have come from the good tree of God? Hey, now there's an opponent who's actually citing our own Bible. Say that God did create the supernatural being that turned evil. How is it possible that an omniscient, all-knowing, God would not know that Satan would turn evil? Actually, some have argued that God did know it would happen, so let's look at the question from both angles. If God did know that Satan would turn evil, why would God have created Satan? If God knew his creation would turn evil and created Satan anyway, doesn't that mean that God wanted Satan to turn evil? Or that he was at least ambivalent about it? Some have said that Satan's turning evil was known and taken into account in God's long-term plan. But why would an all-good God need an evil Satan in his long-term plans? One would think that an all-good God would be able to enact whatever plans he had without the need of a super-evil being. So what if God didn't know that Satan would turn evil? Wouldn't that mean that God is not omniscient? Some argue that because of free will, God's omniscient doesn't give God the ability to know what decisions are going to be made by his creations. Perhaps by giving Satan free will, God did not know what Satan would do. But shouldn't a perfect God at least have considered the possibility and made some sort of contingency plan? Let's move on and assume that somehow Satan did turn evil, whether or not God knew it would happen. Why did God not immediately destroy Satan? Or, if God doesn't want to destroy his own creations, why did God at least not immediately contain Satan, perhaps lock him up in hell? Or take away his supernatural powers? I think that Christians say that God will do this at the end of judgment. Why wait? Why let Satan do evil in the meantime? If God can stop Satan now and doesn't, isn't God guilty of allowing evil? Isn't God acting as an accomplice 
to evil? Now let's assume that there is some explanation for this. So we have Satan, a powerful being who is intent on corrupting man. Why does Satan only do things surreptitiously? For example, why doesn't Satan shoot intense pain through every human on earth until they confess their allegiance to him? It's like watch the X-Men or something, you know? I know that Christians say God acts as a hidden God because he wants to see if we will freely choose him. But it seems unlikely that Satan, a pure evil being, would have any such motivation. So why doesn't Satan just come down and kill everybody or do whatever he, evil he feels like? Maybe God wouldn't allow Satan to act so bold. Then why does God let Satan operate surreptitiously? God allows Satan to do supernatural evil and surreptitious evil? This doesn't seem to make any sense. One explanation offered by apologist Hugh Ross, of course, one of my heroes, is that Satan is not allowed to tempt us more than we are capable of withstanding. So I suppose that means that nobody is ever successfully tempted by Satan, right? If they are, then by definition, they have been tempted more than they can withstand, right? I suppose Dr. Ross is saying that Satan is only allowed to tempt us to the extent that God expects us to be able to withstand. But how could this really work? If Dr. Ross is right and God limits Satan's evil, then is Satan constantly asking God, Hey God, can I like uh, shoot massive pain through this guy's body over here and see if he turns against you? And God says, No, Satan, you can't do that. And then Satan asks, Well, uh, do you mind if I like kill his baby and see if he turns against you then? And then God says, okay, Satan, I guess you can do that. You might think I'm being sacrilegious, but on this point, I would just like to refer you to the book of Job. It seems to me that either option, Satan self-limits his evil for some reason, or God limits Satan's evil. And that isn't very believable. But saying I'm wrong, say that one or the other of these explanations why Satan's evil is at least somewhat constrained. If Satan does anything at all to influence man, how can man be said to have free will? Given that Satan has supernatural powers and we don't. How can God really expect us, mere mortals, to be able to withstand any temptation by a supernatural evil being? If Satan can use supernatural powers, even a little bit, against us mere mortals, how can we truly have free will? By the way, does Satan not know that God is omnipotent? How dumb could Satan be to think... (laughs) that he could possibly win out against an omnipotent creator, the creator of everything, including even himself. Some Christians say that Satan does know he will eventually lose, but he just wants to take on as many people down to hell with him as he can. But how could Satan have been dumb enough to even consider revolting against God, knowing full well that he could not possibly win? And how could a third of God's angels have been dumb enough to join Satan, as they too should have known from the beginning that they would have really no chance of winning? Also, what is the reason for God not revealing himself while we're on the topic? When a skeptic asks the question, Christians will often answer that God feels that if we were to have absolute proof of his existence, we wouldn't have free will to reject him. Yet Satan, even though he had proof positive of God's existence, was still able to disobey God. So, if Satan could have proof positive of God and still have free will to disobey God, then why can't we have proof positive of God? Finally, if Satan could become evil because of free will, How will God ever solve the problem of evil? Couldn't tomorrow some other creation of God use its free will to turn evil? Couldn't this continue to happen for all eternity? How can heaven be any better than earth if it's subject to the same problem of free will allowing beings to choose evil? Let me summarize. I don't believe in an all-good God could have created a powerful supernatural being that turned evil. But even if I'm wrong, I don't believe an omniscient God could have not known that it would happen 
or at least make contingency plans. But if somehow this evil Satan did come to exist, I don't think that an all-good God would let Satan continue to do evil. But if God did let Satan continue to do evil, I don't think that an all-evil super-being would be restrained or act surreptitiously. He would use his supernatural powers however he felt like it. But even if this evil being was for some reason at least somewhat restrained, the fact that he, having supernatural powers, could have influence over us, mere mortals, would mean that we don't truly have free will. So from start to finish, the concept of an all-evil super-being Satan is untenable. Next week, your assignment is to come back with an essay that rebuts each of these points with scripture verses to back them up. Or at least sometime in your lifetime. It's not often that I think that there's enough credible stuff out there to really make us think. But the reason I actually took the time to read that big, long passage is because I know that as we read this, some of us in this room want to know the answer to some of those questions. And if we're so at a level of understanding that we can rebut every one of them, there are many people that we know in our lives that want to know the answers to these questions. Now, I think we can go on a point-by-point analysis of this and rebut it. But I think a lot of the conversations we had tonight leading up to it already did. I don't think it's that God didn't know. I think we've actually come very close to explaining it. And he keeps referring to a contingency plan, and many Christians are tempted to say that Jesus was a contingency plan. You know, an all-knowing God doesn't need a contingency plan. He already knows everything that's going to happen. It's not like he's caught by surprise and goes, all right, we'll go to plan B now. Jesus was always plan A. And God's decision was to set it up and let it happen. Now, I will confess to you that this leads to some troubling questions that we have yet to resolve, and maybe that's our challenge for next week is to start to resolve them. What is the purpose of letting Satan run around unrestrained as long as he is? There's a part of my soul that has always ached when I think that people are being born every day that will have no chance of knowing God. Or who for certain will reject him. Let's go to, an, you know, let's not even talk about those who haven't heard. That's too much for our minds sometimes. Let's just talk about people who have heard and are just going to reject him. You know that when I started this series, I said that in the last century... There are more people alive on this earth than have ever been alive in the, all the years preceding on earth. That the six and a half billion people that we have residing on earth are more than all the people who have ever lived on earth combined. And it just looks like it's going to keep increasing. And the percentage of Christians is just going to keep decreasing. Like, isn't it a time to stop? I want to come back and, and attack some of those questions because those are the things that I think ache in our hearts. When somebody puts this kind of stuff in our minds, we need to be able to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. That's our goal. And to be able to say, no. God's plan is actually more amazing than even what you're perceiving it to be. And there's a way out of every seeming conundrum that you've created for yourself. It's just that you don't see it. That's kind of what the goal is. Go to the next slide if you could, Anthony. Angela alluded to something a little bit ago, and she said that God used Satan. I don't know if that's true, how he does it, how it works. I know that he knew it would happen. But I want to point out to you that Revelation 4.11 says this. 
Worthy art thou, O Lord and our God, to receive the glory and the honor and the power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they were and were created. You know, everything that is ever created, everything that exists, exists for one ultimate purpose, and that's God's glory. That actually probably includes Satan. That somehow Satan, his existence is still ultimately going to glorify God. So I don't know that I would go as far as to say that he is using him, but that even Satan and what Satan does brings glory to God. How does Satan bring glory to God even in what he's doing right now? When Satan goes on the prowl and tries to attack someone and someone reaches out and finds grace and salvation and finds rescue in the Lord or help or whatever it is, that brings glory to God. All right, I think we've kind of come to the point where I want to leave it tonight. If anybody wants this thing, this critique of our view of Satan, just can you write down an email and I'll send it out to you, okay? You know, I, I really, you know, I'm joking around like we have a midterm exam and you guys should answer this thing, but, you know, seriously? You guys should read this thing and rebut it on your own because you guys know that in college or any other place you take any kind of subject, listening to something and agreeing with it and nodding your head is not the same thing as sitting down and doing the work and actually reading through it and writing it back. That's the reason professors do exams, not just for grading, but because real learning happens when you actually have to process what's going on. And while it would be crazy to actually require that, I think it would be not so crazy for you to actually on your own read through this and try to see if you could take on these points and have an answer. Let's pray and you want to do a couple more songs? Close? Okay. Lord, we come before you tonight and we're wrestling with um, maybe areas where we're not even qualified to go into, Lord, to speculate about all the things that you do. But Lord, really it's, it's just intended to give you glory for the ways that you your plan is so perfect in so many ways that it answers the critics. And I'm confident, Lord, that if we went through this on a point-by-point basis, we would find that your plan was not only sufficient, but awe-inspiring in the way that it answered every objection. And Lord, we're assured that even if we don't understand your plan, that's not really, that's not really fatal to us, Lord. That you've already assured us of salvation. You've given us the things that we really know. So forgive us, Lord, if sometimes... We're curious and we want to know you more. In fact, Lord, give us that knowledge. Even if it's from your Holy Spirit, Lord, to come and bless your children who just care to know more about you and to respond to those who are constantly criticizing. Lord, give us a heart of love because even as we say the words in this sanctuary, Lord, we know that there are people dying who do not know you and will spend eternity separated from you. And Lord, Let us never take that lightly. That even while there's a breath left in someone, if there's a chance that we have to impact their lives so that they might get to know you, Lord, embolden us and give us the love and the courage to do so. This knowledge would be empty if it were not used for that purpose. So Lord, thank you again for giving us minds that are willing to wrestle with these topics. Let us not rest there, Lord. Let us not rest until we can Seek and save as many, Lord, through your power, through your love, and through the grace you've already given to us. Pray these things in your name. Amen.